Hello, and thank you for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. The Teaching Math Teaching Podcast is sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators. Your hosts are Ava Thanheiser, Dusty Jones, and Joel Amadon. Today, we're talking with Dr. Paula Stein, who is the Interim Associate Vice Provost for Academic Personnel and Policy and a Professor of Mathematics Education at the College of Education at North Carolina State University. And we're talking with Dr. Dan Heck, who is a vice president and partner at Horizon Research, Inc. They both just published a book with a co-author, Kristen Malzahn. The book is titled Activating Math Talk, 11 Purposeful Techniques for Your Elementary Students. Welcome, both Paola and Dan. Would you please tell us a little bit about you and your background? Sure. So first, thank you so much, Eva, Dusty, and Joel for the invitation to come and talk. Uh, I'm Paula Stein. You already mentioned my long titles. I am honored to be a member of AMTE and have served AMTE in many capacities. And I think I have worked with all of you through AMTE and uh, being a math teacher educator, despite all the titles I have is really what I would say is my main professional identity. And I am always proud and honored to be part of this community. So thank you for having me as well. Dan Hack, you said I work at Horizon Research Incorporated in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Horizon is a small private research and evaluation company that specializes in STEM education. I think even before we called it STEM education. So I've been at Horizon for 22 years now. My background is in educational psychology, but mainly work in mathematics education because that's where my training is as well and do you know a wide range of evaluation and um, research on curriculum, professional development, teaching environments, almost anything related to students' experiences learning math is of interest to me. Thank you both so much for coming. And um, I know both of you also from prior work, Dan and I have collaborated because Horizon has done evaluation work for several of our NSF grants. And Paula and I served on the AMT board and other things together. So I'm just super excited to have you both here today. And I'd like to get us started by talking a little bit about how each of you got your start in either teaching math teachers or studying math teacher learning and why. I always go back to this moment in my life and career because I was actually a physics major in college, I was getting my master's degree in physics, and I learned about this group that was studying this thing called ethnomathematics. And I actually think it's an honor to mention it today since we just lost Professor Ubi D'Ambrosio, and that was the group he started uh, back in Brazil. I'm from Brazil, and I was studying at Unicamp where he had been a professor, so he had started this group. He wasn't at Unicamp when I was there, but the group was there. And I learned about this whole world of math education through that, and I had the opportunity to work on teacher professional development. Uh, at that point, and I was just like, wow, this is what I want to do. You know, I'm fascinated by teachers. How do we make decisions when we are teaching? And everything you've got to do in the classroom is such a 
it's really such a hard job and so rewarding at the same time. So I actually then went back to teach math for a little bit before I came and then got a PhD here in the U.S. So I think as soon as the first opportunity I had to work with teachers, that's where my heart was. I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to understand teachers. I want to be able to think about this profession better and the decisions we make in the classroom. How do we come to learn? And not to keep going much further, but later I had done some work in understanding teachers in my own research. And then I I was like, you know, yeah, understanding teachers is great, but I also want to have an active role in participating in teachers' growth and my own growth and learning with teachers. So that's when, again, I pivoted and started really doing research and practice in elementary teacher professional development. And I love to say it's been 30 years and I love every day, every day of it. I'm like, yes, this is what I love to do. That's fantastic, Paola. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what about you, Dan? So, yeah, I, my undergraduate work was in mathematics uh, as well as history. And after a failed foray to pursue graduate school in history. I just found that my my what I really loved was math. And so I did a master's degree in teacher preparation in mathematics with the full intention of going on to a to a teaching career. That was from Wake Forest University and moved from there to Wisconsin. And it was very difficult to find a teaching job even for a math teacher in Madison, Wisconsin. So I was looking for other kinds of work to do, and the master's program I was in did include a a research thesis, so I had that um, development of some research methods as well, and found a job working with Norman Webb at the um, Wisconsin Center for Education Research, and that was really my introduction to the potential of a career in math education research, and um, did that for three years, learned a ton, but then moved to Illinois and um, found a teaching job. Because that was again still where I wanted you know my career to be about mathematics teaching and did that for some time, but found I missed the the research environment as well, but didn't want to get too far from working with teachers and in classrooms. So I did my doctoral work in educational psychology, but kept up math education um, you know as well, and then ended up moving to North Carolina and Horizon Research was an amazing fit for me because working at Horizon really is just sitting in between the research world and the practical world. We don't do research that we don't think has implications for practice. And the research that we do really derives from problems of practice, I think. And it's also, I mean, it's embarrassing how many amazing people I've gotten to work with over the years, either as an evaluator or later as a partner in the work like we have with Paola. And so that's what, what I love about it is just the, the amazingly interesting environment of classrooms and learning environments for mathematics and the, the deep thinking that people do and just the, the ability to work with so many others investigating interesting questions and learning, learning so much that can make such a difference for kids. What is interesting to me listening to both of you is that you can clearly hear the love for <laughs> teaching and learning in both of your answers. So that's really cool. 
Any questions from my co-facilitators before we move on? No, I, I just love hearing about the small world. Um, I was drinking from my University of Wisconsin coffee mug and I'm Wisconsin boy. And just knowing, had a chance to interact with Norman Webb in one of my doctoral seminars or something like that. And like, just seeing like, wow, that, that guy is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like just to sit down and, and learn from him. Like the fact that you had a chance to work with him, Dan, it's like, that's pretty amazing. And some of my undergraduates, if they heard, you know, Webb and Webb's depth of knowledge, like he's got his fingerprints all over. So this is great. And uh, Paula, I was just glad that you mentioned Ubi D'Ambrosio. Um, yeah. When I when I had uh, heard about that earlier this week, I think I thought, wow, that's a that's a loss to the community. But I'm really glad that for the work that he did, especially in ethnomathematics, and the, the fact that it brought you into this field is just a extra <laughs> blessing. I think. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. He there was never never a time that I talked to Ubi that I didn't either learn something new or was forced to think differently about something, you know, that I was uh, working on. So yeah, it's a big loss. And I think he's given us an amazing contribution. Oh, can I say one more thing about him? He said one of the things I love the most, and I say it all the time. He said once, school is where you go to meet the different. And that for me was like, oh my God, that's exactly what we do. You know, you should go to school to meet the people you don't usually see around you. And I thought that was beautiful. That is, that is a beautiful quote. Yeah. Yeah. I've carried it with me probably now for 20 years, but it moves me every time. It's amazing. So that was Ubi. <laughs> I just love all the connections that like, as we keep talking to people, there's so many connections. All right, so let's start talking a little bit about this book, Activating mm -hmm. Math Talk. What is this book about? Well, I'll just say something about the title first. It took us a long time to come up with the word activating because we knew we were about math talk and we thought of a lot of verbs that didn't seem quite right. But we went with activating because I think it captures this vision that we have about elementary mathematics instruction that is active for teachers and especially for students to be very active participants in the conversations and communications that go on in their classroom so that they can develop conceptual understanding and procedural fluency with real meaning. And that meaning comes from actively communicating with one another in an intentional way. In the book, we try to provide a vision for what this looks like in the classroom, and then also a structure for teachers to be able to implement it. I will say the book is the culmination of 10 years of work that we've been doing together. I tell Dan and Kristen every time, it's amazing. We still like each other. You know, we've been working on this for 10 years. And so the book is really a culmination of 10 years of work and a lot of feedback from teachers and math leaders on the work that we were doing. And I think there is a premise that guided our work, which is this idea that all students should learn and they actually have to be taught how to participate in productive math discourse. And I think this idea for me is super important that you can teach kids how to participate in this kind of discourse. What we are asking 
What teachers are asking students to engage with in the classroom regarding this course is not how kids naturally talk in the playground with their friends. So it is something that they have to, to learn and teachers can teach. And so I think that's a big important piece of the book is supporting teachers and providing structures so that uh, they can teach their kids how to engage in this kind of productive math discourse. Can you say a few more, more words about the difference between the playground talk and the math classroom talk? Sure, I'll get started and, and then jump in. For me, the first thing that comes to mind, um, Eva, when you ask me that question is purposefulness. You know, the kind of math conversation that we know now supports learning, it is purposeful and it pushes the kids to explain their thinking, to consider what others are, are thinking and articulating their ideas about someone else's uh, mathematical ideas. So this conversation is very purposeful. And actually, if I think about it, not only kids, but none of us in general go around, you know, with all this purposeful conversation and, you know, probing questions to our friends. So I think it's the purposefulness that uh, comes to mind right now. I think another piece of it is, so we focus a lot on forms of expression, whether that be language or other nonverbal forms of expression. And of course, you know, when kids talk, they talk with their hands, they talk with their faces, they communicate in other ways, but making those mathematically rich and attaching new meanings to, to words or to symbols or other kinds of representations is, you know, maybe happens naturally in conversations, but in the classroom, it, it does have this intentionality to do that around, you know, a discipline and the practices of that discipline. And so that's what is part of what's being learned is how to become a participant in those practices that include a lot of, a lot of aspects of communication. You know, we've talked about the first part of the book's name, which is the Activating Math Talk, but then there is the 11 techniques. So let me say a little bit about the techniques too, because we started by partnering with colleagues in elementary literacy. I work in an elementary department. So in conversations with colleagues in literacy, they seem to have a lot of techniques and structures that they would put in place. So we started working with our colleagues in literacy, learning some of these structures they had and thinking about, okay, what would that look like in math? How would we do that? Or is that useful in math? So in the book, we have a collection of techniques that we have, I was going to say appropriated, but I'm not sure that's the best word, but we have thought about them in the mathematical context and how they can then support teachers as they support students to engage in math conversations and the use of multiple representations and all that. So the book has this vision for what this course looks like, how you can organize it in your classroom, and then some very purposeful techniques that uh, teachers can try in their classrooms. So from your description so far, it sounds to me the discourse moves focus on accessing mathematics and engaging with each other's mathematics and those kinds of things. Are there moves in there that deal with 
equitable participation as well? Yeah. So one focus that has been a focus for us from the beginning is attention to emergent multilinguals. And so there is a lot of discussion in the classroom about how to support multilingual students. And I think some of what we say regarding multilingual students actually apply to all of our elementary students, which is truly all kids are emergent math communicators. You know, even the kids who are fluent in English, or we could say fluent in academic, in in school, accepted English, they are also learning to communicate in math. So we talk a lot about that. The other thing we talk about, and we refer to it in relation to multilinguals, but I think it's true for all of our students, is you really have to know your students. And you can't just label them and put them in a block with others that may look like them or talk like them. And you have to understand each one, where they're coming from, and stop this idea that it's a homogenous group because they are, you know, from category X. And so we do talk about that in the book several times. Yeah, and a number of the techniques are really geared toward certainly participation, also to access. We think a lot about how the techniques draw on student assets, whether those are linguistic, cognitive assets, cultural assets. And I think they're the whole structure of the kinds of conversations that we work toward are about you know addressing power and that making sure that every student's ideas are powerful and are perceived as powerful. And the techniques are you know, just a structure for trying to establish that kind of culture in the classroom. The main, what we find useful about the techniques is they are easily actionable. Most of them, it doesn't take long to learn how to do them, but the book really isn't about learning how to do them. It's about learning how to learn from them. So, the fact that you can pick up and do a technique, it's just the first step. It's then what you learn about your students and what they learn about the math and how you can continue to use that to improve the environment and the outcomes um, for students along the way. So I like to ask in general, how do you define high quality math talk? Because I think that's high quality mathematics teaching and high quality math talk are terms that we toss around quite a bit in our community. Yeah. So could you give us your interpretation? I'll go ahead and, and give. I wrote down, I went into the book and took our specific definition of math discourse there. So we say, and all these words are important in this definition, it's pattern ways of using questioning, explaining, listening, and different modes of communication in the classroom to promote conceptual understanding of math for all learners. That's our definition. That Patterning is really important because that has a lot to do with participation, access, and power. The next four important words are what we call the dimensions of math discourse, questioning, explaining, listening, and using a various variety of modes of communication. And the last part is about the goal, which is is conceptual understanding for all. I'll add that. So what we do in the book is we take this definition And we actually describe four different patterns of the scores that we call the types of the scores. 
And one is correcting the scores that it's kind of, you know, it's the initiate, respond, evaluate type of pattern. The other one is the elicit discourse where the teacher starts to ask more students to participate. And I have heard Elham Kazemi called it stand up, sit down, clap, clap, or something like this, right? You get more kids <laughs> to participate and you just say, great. So correcting, eliciting, then probing when the teachers start really pushing with probing and pressing questions. And then responsive when students start taking responsibility as well for the discourse in the classroom and making connections, you know, across ideas. And so we have a matrix that kind of tries to exemplify what these types of discourse look like. So what are teachers doing for each of the four dimensions, you know, within each of the four types of discourse? And what we talk to teachers is that there might be a moment that correcting the scores is appropriate. If your goal is, for example, to check on facts, if that's your goal for that particular moment of your lesson, that might be an appropriate pattern. But when your goal is, as we say, conceptual understanding for all, then you need to move towards probing and responsive discourse because those are the types of discourse that support the development of conceptual understanding and actually procedural fluency as well, right? Because part of fluency is this flexibility of thinking. And so correcting discourse may help part of fluency, but not the full understanding of what fluency means. So that's how we talk about the scores in the book and and with the teachers that we have worked with. So I'm realizing that I could probably talk about this for the next two hours, but (laughs) people probably don't want to listen that long. So let's jump into the next question. Like who should read this book or who should get this book? Who is this book for? So this is, it's published by Corwin Press and available now. It, the primary audience for this book is elementary teachers. When the work that we did over, you know, the 10 years that Paula was describing was really about professional development and working those who support, you know, teachers at the university level or at the district level and provide professional development, professional learning experiences. But we were approached to do something that spoke directly to elementary teachers. And so that's who this book is. That's the audience here. But, you know, people who provide ongoing learning support for in-service or prepare pre-service teachers, it's also for them. Yeah, I think math teacher educators will also enjoy and could use it with the teachers they are working with. But yes, the book was written with teachers as the audience in mind. We're seeing it as a, a resource for the professional development program that we've you know developed around these ideas. And we know of people that are using it in methods courses as well, because it's very pedagogically focused with an emphasis on mathematics content and mathematics practice as well. So we certainly think it's appropriate for methods courses or professional development programs. I had a quick question. Given that there could be math coaches listening to this podcast, well, and, you know, math teacher educators of all types. And given all your experience, uh, 10 years looking at this stuff and looking, seeing teachers do things, what is something that maybe a teacher is doing or that you've observed where, you know, it's just something that they do, but you want to point out like how important that is to activating math talk. Is there some things that like teachers just 
might normally do within their teaching, but you're like, you know what, that thing that you're doing, you might not even be thinking about, but that's really important for activating math talk. Is there something like that that comes to mind? I would say that in our work with teachers in general, one thing I keep learning again and again is that there are things that we have, we as math teacher educators may have created, uh, we have a whole new vocabulary and we have language to talk about the classroom now in a much more precise way than we did 30 years ago. And sometimes just naming those things for teachers is really helpful. And so, for example, in our work, just being able to name and say, hey, what you just did looks like correcting the scores and it's good for learning facts, or you just asked a really good probing question, or you just, you know, what you did is called noticing. You just stopped and uh, noticed a student's mathematical thinking. I think a lot of the tools that we have developed as researchers, and because of that, we named all these phenomena This naming is super important for teachers because it helps them see some of these things that you are asking about. So we do see some teachers who ask good questions, you know, in in coming from literature, they call those uh, fat questions. You know, they had thin questions and fat questions. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. being able to say, you know, this fat question you just asked, that's a really good probing question (laughs) that you just did. And so we try as best as we can to foster this kind of naming of of what's happening, because that's how we manage to talk about it, right? Once you name it, now we can talk about it. And we see a lot of that. And we do try to name the great things teachers are doing. And sometimes when they're doing something that's not working as well, try to name that as well. I don't know how explicit we've made this in the book, but certainly elementary teachers do this sort of moving kids around within the space of the classroom. And so often lessons start by bringing particularly younger students forward and they sit on the carpet together. And then they get sent back to pods or tables or you know other spaces in the classroom to do their work with one another. And I think these the techniques that are that, that are in the book take advantage of those students in different spaces and where their social focus is likely Mm -hmm. to be during those times. So, you know, the fact that you put students in a small group for sort of an exploration in a lesson, that puts them face-to-face with each other, but it doesn't tell them how to work together or how to talk together. Mm -hmm. So, there's an opportunity there, and we think the techniques capitalize on that opportunity. Same with, you know, if you bring students forward to the carpet in the kind of conclusion summary part of a lesson, that's a really challenging kind of conversation to have, but the students know that they're now working as a collective group in the classroom to make sense of what they've done during that lesson. And the techniques now provide some structure and opportunity to help guide how that can happen. So, there's a lot that already goes on in classrooms that just provides the right kind of environment and social focus where these techniques can now emphasize the content and cognitive aspects, you know, for uh, powerful teaching. I like that. Just like putting that intentionality behind, like, what are these things that you're doing and are you providing the appropriate support for them to engage in the kind of talk that you want them to do? And then mm-hmm. back to what Paula said is like naming these things and I'll, I'll take uh, some liberties here. It's like by naming these things that teachers are doing and, and providing that vocabulary. Now you're activating math teacher talk. Hey, see what I did there. Mm. 
That's exactly. There we go. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And also thinking about those different ideas, especially what you brought up, Dan, the, the different types of conversations that teachers and students have in the classroom, depending on where they are in the lesson. I like how your book outlines these and sort of these are the talk techniques for the launch phase or for the explore phase or for the discussion phase. Those types of conversations are different. So it's, it's not that, oh, I learned how to do math talk and now I'm doing that one thing. That's, I guess that's a naive way to approach that, but I really appreciate the way that you've kind of named some things and sorted them that way. My question is a little bit different than Joel's. These were kind of uh, burst in looking at some ideas from literacy in elementary and learning to read and things like that at the elementary school. I'm wondering if you have thoughts about how these strategies might be used or developed or modified in middle school or high school classrooms. One person that read a draft of the book and and gave us some feedback was Peg Smith. And she, this was so gratifying to hear from her that, you know, she said the five practices and, you know, work with challenging math tasks, there's still work to do and and how students engage with one another in particular. And she, you know, felt like these techniques would translate, many of these techniques would translate well into the, the middle school or high school environment that, you know, just because students are older doesn't mean that they know how to have these conversations either, especially when the content gets, you know, challenging and all con- the content we're teaching students should always be appropriately challenging. So having conversations about it is going to be tough and students appreciate structure and opportunity to engage in meaningful ways. Let me say two things that may sound contradictory, but I think they're both important. So I think the structures are helpful in any context. And to be honest, we use the techniques with the teachers themselves in the professional development. As the students are learning, students here taken very broadly, whatever age, grade, or if students need to learn to participate in productive discourse, because that's something they have not had the opportunity to learn before, I think those structures are very helpful at any point. So that said, the contradictory part in a way is the goal is not to get better and better at these structures. The goal is to get better and better in being able to do these four dimensions of high quality discourse, being able to question, explain, listen, and use different representations. And so in a classroom where students have really learned how to participate, you, should, you probably don't need the structures because students will listen and will question and will engage, and then you can remove the structures. So we try to be very careful about that, that the technique is the mean, but getting better and better at that technique is not the goal per se, because eventually the goal is to remove the technique and have a group of students who know how to participate because they learn the different dimensions and can implement that. That's a really good uh, explanation. I'm glad you set that up uh, in the way that you did to say these sound like they're contradictory, but really, I think they do go well together. If the goal is this productive discourse, then you don't necessarily have to have it look in one of these 11 ways. But Right, it, right. Yeah. Yeah. Those are ju- just intros. So you learn to, for, some of them are like, so here is a way to help kids listen to each other. You know, here's a technique that can help you with that. 
So eventually they will learn to listen and then you don't need the technique. Okay. I'm going to move us along because apparently not just me, but all of us could talk about this for multiple hours. I'm picking my favorite of the next few questions and using that as our closing question. We like to ask people we talk to, to give a little bit of advice to other people. One of the questions we like to ask is, where do you go online to find resources? So I'd like to both of you to tackle that as you're in your regular professional life. What are your favorite places to go find resources? I have to say, I usually start with a very open Google search, and then I start checking on on what I would consider quality of what I see. And then if I see something, then I'll go there more often. So there are certain places I like to go for certain things. But if I'm thinking about teaching, I definitely, honestly, I have not been teaching for a while. So I don't want to talk about that because I will sound outdated. I have been administrating for the past few years. (laughs) Okay, so that question might not make sense. And I was thinking, Dan, I don't know if it makes sense for you. You know, I really do trust the professional societies. NCTM, NCSM, AMTE are go-tos for me. I mean, if there's there's something, position paper or, you know, a resource, those are go-tos because they have broad appeal, broad input. I find those to be great resources. And then... I generally, when working with something new, I try to find the yearbook or one of the something in the review of ed research or, or, you know, because I just feel like somebody has made the effort to synthesize kind of the state of the field at some point. And then, you know, those bibliographies are fabulous resources. And then with things like Google Scholar or ResearchGate, you can try to go forward from the moment that those things were done to get yourself truly up to speed on on the current work. Yeah. And I think like both of you said, Google is really my first go-to as well. (laughs) I think Google is just powerful. But then I was thinking, Paula, as you mentioned, like, oh, then I look at what is trustworthy. And I think those are the things that are hard to pinpoint. Like, how do you know what is a trustworthy source or not? But I think an open Google search is probably where most of us start. That's what I like about what Dan suggested too, though, like starting with something that the organizations come out with. And now right. I've got a, like an anchor to start with to go into Google Scholar. I mean, that's something I advise too. So that's, that's great stuff. So I'm going to give a last chance to Joel and Dusty to ask questions or add comments or compliments. I guess one thing I would ask is, you know, in, in your different you know sections of the world for those that are stepping into teaching math teachers just what's one piece of advice you'd want them to know in the context as you see it from your current positions one advice for teachers and math teachers okay i have to start with a little joke because i'm brazilian and in brazil we say if advice were good i would sell it (laughs) so (laughs) when i give advice i always put this caveat (laughs) You know, maybe it's not that good, but I would say for anyone starting in this job, just keep approaching it with curiosity. Don't stop being curious. Don't stop learning. And uh, for me, this curiosity and, and ongoing learning is what makes me really enjoy what I do every day. So I guess the piece of advice that I do give or would would give people is to remember that math teacher education is a much broader world than 
schools and departments of education. There are opportunities in school districts and in nonprofits and research organizations, R&D. And I think that's expanding actually pretty rapidly now with explosion of learning environments online or otherwise. And we need to evolve to make sure that all the places where math is taught and learned are informed by the best evidence and the best understanding and the best preparation and education. So I'm going to add another piece of advice. Check out the book that we've been talking about. There you go. Paula, do you want to say anything about the uh, professional development program too? Yeah, I'd love to say (laughs) yes. So we are also now creating a way to scale up our professional development We have a fully online facilitator course. So if a district is interested in in this work, they can work with us and we can prepare somebody, a leader in the district to offer the, the program. And then once this person is prepared to be facilitator, then we open our learning management system to the district and they can use our materials with teachers. So we should be ready to roll this out in the fall and start offering the professional development beyond our area of North Carolina, where we have been able to reach and hopefully to reach other districts and other colleagues. So Dan, anything else you want to add? No, I don't think so. It's a multimedia set of materials, I guess. And it's very, very thorough. We tried to make it easily navigable for users who are leading or participating in the program. In the 10 years we've been working on it, we have seen a lot of uh, impact on teachers. So, Well, this sounds like a phenomenal resource. I hope lots of people are going to take advantage of that. (laughs) Thanks, Eva. We appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you both for coming on to our podcast again. Thank you for the invitation. Mm -hmm. And um, thank you all for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We hope that you're able to implement something that you heard today or at another podcast and take the opportunity to interact with other math teacher educators. Speaking of interacting, what do you want to hear in upcoming podcasts? Who do you want to hear from? Let us know through the virtual suggestion box or email one of us. Find our virtual suggestion box in the contact us page at the teachingmathteachingpodcast.com link or in the show notes for this episode.